everyone. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Dea. And this week, we're speaking with Anne Goldstein about her latest translation, which is a novel by Alba de Cespedes called Forbidden Notebook. Yes. Interesting novel, really interesting writer, first published in the 50s. She worked through World War II. She was anti-fascist. She was, I think, kicked out of Italy and tells us a little bit more about her. But really fascinating history. She was apparently a big hit in Italy, but her books have been out of print for a very long time. This is an old book, but new to us. Yes, and it's coming from Anne Goldstein, who's such a celebrated translator, the translator of Ferrante, among other Italian literature greats. And I just loved this book so much because it seemed to me to be very close to my life and yet not really at all close to my life, but it's it's by someone who's kind of at a certain age, wondering what's still possible, feeling both radicalized and, and also kind of useless and looked over. I was very moved by it. And it's really, really funny too. It made me laugh a lot. Yeah. I mean, as Anne says, like there's a lot of particulars to this book, but a lot of things that are also pretty universally understandable, I think, for most people and probably for most women in particular. Yeah. And I was wondering, since it's all about someone keeping a a notebook Mm -hmm. and learning about themselves through their notebook, do you keep a notebook? I don't keep a notebook, Kate. I don't. I did. I did a very, very long time ago. And I have, okay, actually for a long time, I kept a notebook in Russian because I figured if anybody found it, very few people would be able to read it. And my parents ever found it, they'd be so horrified by the quality of the language that they wouldn't read. <laughs> That's funny. I guess everyone who writes in their notebook in this novel, the person who's writing the notebook is horrified at the idea of anyone finding it. And I guess I would right. be too, but I also kind of assume like that I always think about that, like that weird self-consciousness in writing in a notebook where you're like, oh, after I die, everyone will read everything so it better be good or like, oh, like maybe I should burn. Yeah, I should burn this notebook because it's not good enough. Not because I say it's just awful things, just because I would be embarrassed that the writing wouldn't be up to par. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so you would be concerned. I would too about the quality of the writing. Yeah, sure. Maybe there's a lot of patheticness that I wouldn't want people to remember me by. But yeah, it, would, it wouldn't be the sentiment as much as just the prose itself, which I guess shows you my neuroses right there. <laughs> I mean, I would love to read your notebooks Aww. pre or post death. I guess. Thank you. <laughs> that. That's very sweet. Okay. Well, um, with that, let's listen to this conversation with Anne. Okay, let's do it. Today, we are speaking with the celebrated translator Anne Goldstein, whose most recent translated work is a novel called Forbidden Notebook by Alba de Cespedes. Anne Goldstein is a former editor at The New Yorker, where she worked from 1974 to 2017. She began translating Italian literature in the 90s and in 2005 translated Elena Ferrante's Days of Abandonment. She went on to translate Ferrante's entire Neapolitan trilogy, starting with My Brilliant Friend. Goldstein is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn Renato Pagioli Prize, and awards from the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Anne's latest translation, Forbidden Notebook, was written by a Cuban-Italian writer, Alba de Cespedes, 
It was first published in Italy in the 1950s. It centers around a woman who buys a notebook on a whim and begins to furtively write in it, hiding it and herself from her husband and her children. Through the notebook, she begins to learn more about herself, her desire, her guilt, the sacrifices she has made for her family, her past, and her future. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I was thinking we could start by you telling us how you came to the Forbidden Notebook as a book to translate and um, how familiar you were with Alba de Cespedes before you translated her work. Well, I knew about her from Ferrante because in the book called Frantumalia, where Ferrante talks about all kinds of different things, she has a long description of a scene, not from this novel, but from another novel of de Cespedes called Della Parte di Lei which is her side of the story. And she has a very long sort of summary and a description of part of that book. And so, of course, I was very interested in, that made me interested in De Cespedes. And in another place in Frantumalia, Ferrante says, she lists like certain women writers who were, she calls books of encouragement, and she includes De Cespedes. But she was not available in Italy. All her books were impossible to find, although she was very popular when the books were published in the 30s and 40s and the 50s. You couldn't find them. And then recently, Mondadori started, this big Italian publisher, started reissuing her books. And just by chance, a friend of mine, Alessandra Bastagni, who was the head of Astra House, who was Italian, and she also, I don't know, somehow De Cespedes got on her radar. She happened to say to me, oh, what do you think? Do you want to do something? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so it kind of happened like that. Also, Jhumpa Lahiri in her book of Italian short stories has a story by De Cespedes. So she was sort of known, but sort of not known. But many Italians that I know had never read her or even heard of her. I mean, there are all these women of that, you know, sort of the mid-century that are, were really great and were popular at the time, but have sort of disappeared. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the circumstances of her literary disappearance and and her history with the political situation in Italy when she was writing when she was alive. Well, she was a she was an anti-fascist. I should say, I mean it's sort of interesting. Maybe you're going to get to this later, but her grandfather, her father was Cuban and her mother was Italian and her grandfather was the first president of Cuba after it was in, became independent from the Spanish. Oh, oh interesting. Like a revolutionary family. <laughs> her father also served, I think, a short time as president of Cuba later. So she, I guess she had it in her blood. <laughs> but she was an anti-fascist. And when the Germans, well, actually, I guess so she started in the 30s, she was arrested for, it was not totally clear why she was arrested, but she engaged in some sort of anti-fascist activities. And her books were very feminist just from the beginning. And her writing was, and the fascists didn't like that much. So she had a hard time getting her first novel, I think, published. She had a publisher, but they couldn't distribute it because they, the fascists didn't want to distribute it. Anyway, eventually they did, and it was incredibly popular. And this was called Nessuno Torna Indietro, which is um, Nobody Goes Back or You Can't Go Back. And all her books have pretty similar themes. But she also wrote a huge amount for cinema, for the theater. She did adaptations of her own work. She wrote for newspapers. And then when the Germans came to Rome in 1943, she wasn't Jewish, but she didn't want to live under the Germans. And her, well, the guy who became her husband was a diplomat, and he didn't want to work for the Germans or the Italians at that point. So they 
they fled Rome and they spent a month living in the woods in Abruzzo, which is outside of Rome, because they couldn't cross the German lines. Finally, they did manage to cross the German lines. They went to Bari and she was there, worked for partisan radio. She broadcast for partisan radio. And then she went to Naples and also broadcast for the radio there. And then finally went back to Rome. I was wondering just because of the the parallels between her life and Natalia Ginsburg, if she was friendly with Natalia Ginsburg, since they seem to have so much in common. Yes, she knew Ginsburg. I mean, I don't know if they were exactly friendly, but after the war, she published, I mean, she was sort of part of the Roman or Italian intellectual scene before the war and after the war. But um, after the Germans had been driven out of Rome by the Allies, she started a magazine she called it, I forget, well, a magazine of something like a politics, literature, and art, something. And she published like all the great writers of the day, including Natalia Ginsburg. Actually, the New York Review published this little exchange between them. Ginsburg wrote this essay on women, and De Cespedes responded to it. So, yes, they were friends. They were, they did know each other. I mean, they were in the same, as you could say, they were the same circles <laughs> in some sense. In Forbidden Notebook, I did wonder if it was, it is one of the most, I mean, there are so many just piercing, amazing observations here about midlife, about identity that I felt were incredibly profound. Something of the situation of Valeria, the narrator, seemed to me perhaps not to line up with Alba de Cespedes' life. So I wonder if yeah. you think she was writing autobiographically or more polemically in this book. Yeah, I think she was not writing autobiographically. I mean, her, well, she was in, in one sense. Her husband, this guy that she went to Abruzzo with and later married, was a diplomat, as I said, I guess. And I think that she had a had a constant struggle with him wanting her to be a diplomat's wife. And she was insisting on being an independent person who was a writer. I mean, she felt that she was really a writer. And I think in that sense, it is autobiographical in, in the sense of a woman struggling to become herself or to be herself or to stay herself in a situation in which, you know, she's constantly being pulled in a different direction or told that she should go in a different direction. I mean, I think that they liked each other. It wasn't that they didn't like each other or didn't love each other. Although I think they both probably had plenty of affairs, but <laughs> but I think it's in that way similar. I mean, that's her experience of the struggle of a woman to become herself or even to figure out what herself is. It's a kind of transposed autobiographical. Yeah. So in this book, that struggle is internalized in Valeria, the main, the main character and the writer of The Forbidden Notebook. And I mean, it seems to me that the struggle here is it's partly between being a mother and being a woman of her own, a person as well as a wife. But also it feels to me that she's constantly struggling between the present and the past and what she feels to be the future. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about the struggles that she's facing in this book and that she's sort of writing down as she kind of thinks through them, as she kind of almost writes herself into them, I would say, right? Like she almost doesn't realize what they are until she's externalized them into this notebook. 
Right. I mean, that's the whole one of the whole great things about it is that she doesn't realize anything until she starts putting it in the notebook. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that women of her age, particularly, were at that point where, you know, there was the past. I mean, there's the example of her mother. There's her mother's way of life, which is totally different from her way of life, and her daughter's, which she hopes, I think. I mean, I think she really does hope, although you could say maybe she uh, is going to be different from hers. So in that way, yeah, she's definitely struggling with... I don't think she ever wants to go back to the past. I don't think that's it. I think she thinks that her mother's life is not a good life. I mean, it's a very narrow and, you know, not very happy life. She does seem to take a lot of... Like, she both rebels against and takes some solace in tradition. Yes, right? yeah, that's true. That's true. Because there's places where she and her mother can meet. I mean, like the right. you know, price of the vegetables... You know, that means more than that. That is is a kind of, as you say, it's like she takes comfort in that. But I also think she feels that it's stifling. Like when she talks about her father being already dead and her parents don't really talk to each other. Yeah, I think that it's that she doesn't want and which she also kind of sees happening in her own marriage that her husband, you know, he doesn't want to talk to her. He's just sort of going into that same mode as her father almost. I thought it was particularly profound that she mentions that no one calls her by her given name anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> That's such a terrible moment when she says about her husband calling her mama. <laughs> I agree. Exactly. It's really... And she kind of recognizes how bad it is. So in a way, it's like the notebook that she's writing in. You know, she It's forbidden because she buys it on a Sunday from a tobacco store which because of monopolies, you know, tobacco stores weren't supposed to sell notebooks on Sundays because it would be competing with stationery stores. So it's forbidden in that literal sense. But it's almost like a gag in the beginning that she doesn't want anyone in her family to know. And what if she was writing? And I thought it was, there's, it was so funny, this whole thing about she doesn't want her husband to go in a room because that's where the notebook is. Right, right. No, no, that it is. It's very funny. I mean, it's kind of surprisingly funny. I really did laugh out loud at times. But then it's it also the notebook, you know, as you're kind of alluding to, becomes almost symbolic for an internal self, a struggle for an individualized self, one that is separate from the family and one that exists. The notebook becomes this space for contemplation. And I think also, you know, just for an identity that is different, that has uh, different wants and desires than the needs of her children or her husband. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the notebook does become the kind of the place where she can comment, can reflect. And she does. I mean, she. I think she uses that word actually a lot Reflect that I reflected on. But, you know, it's also dangerous in a way because it makes her see how it isn't necessarily welcome, always welcome information. You know, like she's always saying, oh, this was a terrible thing to do. It was so stupid. I should throw it away. I should stop. So she's fighting against that too, against finding out things about herself that aren't necessarily pleasant. Like the whole thing with um, when she gets involved with, or we try not to, if, well, it doesn't matter. Guido, <laughs> her boss, I mean, at first it's, I mean, innocent in a way. And then she starts thinking about it in terms of money. And suddenly, that too becomes less of an escape than it used to be because it's suddenly tainted in some way. It seems like the diary is such a double-edged thing for her. I mean, the, the notebook. 
it's hard, but she persists. Well, she persists for a while. <laughs> Six months. <laughs> Work in this book is really interesting and almost counterintuitive. She very much identifies as a mother and a wife, but she works outside of the home. As you mentioned, she has this boss named Guido, who she becomes sort of involved with. We won't say exactly what happens, but she sees the office as an escape. She goes there on Saturdays, which I think for most people is, I mean, maybe some people would approach work this way, but as a source of freedom, as a source of escape is somewhat of an unusual way of understanding your job. I wonder what you think work is for her. And if you could talk a little bit about how she she sort of understands work, it's a little weird. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, well, first of all, she understands it as an economic necessity. I mean, I think that's the basic line. But I think over the years, and I don't I don't think it's necessarily that conscious, she seems to take a lot of pride in it and to to see it as something that first of all, is not appreciated by her family at all. They appreciate the fact that she brings the money, but they don't appreciate the fact that she is like a person in a job. And I think she is aware of that. And she feels that way, that that's an important part of work. And I think that's probably why it seems like an escape. I mean, it's an escape because it's, I mean, I I sort of get that. I remember like occasionally going to the office (laughs) on a weekend just to get away, (laughs) just to get out of the house. And I didn't even have two difficult children. <laughs> no, I think that it's it does give her some some self-value, if you want to put it that way. But it's hard because she doesn't get any recognition from her family that that's part of who she is. I mean, to them, it seems like she's almost entirely the this um, cook, bed maker, you know, supporter, bring the boy coffee when he's studying late, makes breakfast. In, I mean, Even the daughter doesn't seem to do any helping around the house. It's interesting to hear about her very pedigreed communist and revolutionary family, because there's this part where she writes, I thought the time I invested in my children was my capital, but now they steal it. They take it away. And so, you know, Alba de Cespedes obviously probably knows a lot about capital <laughs> um, and discussions about it. So it's it's interesting to hear her talk about that within the context of homemaking, of child rearing. Yeah. I mean, she had one child. She had a child when she was like 17. She got married when she was 15. She had a child when she was 17. So although she cared for her child and she took care of him, although I think he lived part of his, a lot of time in boarding school and with his father, but she was very attached to him. But I don't think she had that same experience of thinking that the child, of the child as being her capital. I mean, just so it's interesting to to have in this book this use that phrase. Yeah, but I, I think it's pretty metaphorical. Well, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, there's no real politics in the book. I wondered that because it did seem to me to be, you know, very subtly maybe kind of a retort towards like a consumerist culture that arises after the war in Italy. Right. And there's yeah. some parts where she's, you know, she's saying basically like she wants to get certain items, but really she knows that it's not even about the items that she wants. It seems like what she wants is a different life, a different something 
to be who she had been or, you know. Yeah. And also the emphasis on things and the price of objects, like her daughter gets this purse from a boyfriend and she thinks it's so wrong that a purse could cost one person's salary for a month. Yeah. Money is a big thing. And I think you're right that it's kind of, she is on some level making a case against this kind of new consumer society. At the same time, there's this obsession with money because she need, they need money to, you know, to pay the rent, kind of. It's kind of a bind. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Anne Goldstein, translator of Forbidden Notebook by Alba de Cespedes. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Maggie Milner on the line with us today. Maggie's new book is called Couplets, and she's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Maggie, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend The Call Out by Kat Fitzpatrick. It is perhaps unsurprisingly, if you know my work, it is a novel in rhyme. But this is this amazingly ambitious series of, well, they're sonnets, they're rhyming sonnets, but they're specifically rhyming sonnets in the style of Alexander Pushkin. But they're about a community of trans women in Brooklyn and it is absolutely hilarious. It is this kind of gossipy, nosy account of, I think, three different relationships. And it's just so much fun and so delicious and really made me laugh. It sounds really good. How did you discover it? It's by this press that I really like, Seven Stories. They publish Annie Arnaud, and they just publish a lot of really sexy and also kind of genre pushing work. I think it maybe also was recommended to me in a piece, either in a piece or through social media by the writer Kay Gabriel, whose work I really love. Kay is a a poet and writes really amazing literary criticism. And so, yeah, I came on my radar and I've been kind of obsessed with it ever since. It sounds really great. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's called The Call Out. That's hyphenated. And it's by Kat Fitzpatrick. All right. Thank you, Maggie. We've been talking to Maggie Milner. Her new book is called Couplets. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with translator Anne Goldstein. I wondered for you, when you're translating a book like this or any book, especially one that's not set in present day, how much research are you doing about the history of that time, the economic situation, custom, anything? Do you do it on a case-by-case basis if something's not making sense or do you try to really like place yourself in the moment that you're translating from? It's usually a case-by-case thing. If there's something that I... What happens is there's something that you don't understand you have to look up, like say the war in Ethiopia or the various consumer things. And then you start reading about, you know, you start looking up one thing and then at least to another and you start reading more about the time and about the period. That's sort of how my research works. It's not very organized. But yeah, I mean, you have to know what the references mean. And it's not always easy, of course to find out what things 
you know, what things are. And then to figure out how to how to put them in the book, <laughs> how to explain to the reader, those kinds of things. Would you like to talk about what those were in this book in particular? Well, as I said, the Ethiopian War, there were things like, um, in the very beginning, the whole thing of the Befana, there are historical things, and then there's there are also cultural references that need to be either explained or... I don't think this is done very much anymore by translators, but you know they might try to find an equivalent, like say, oh, it's you know Santa Claus. But I feel like it takes away something from the atmosphere of the book or from the life of people that are living in a different time and a different culture. And you know, Santa Claus is meaningless to them. It's, it just seems wrong to me. <laughs> it seems unnatural. I mean, I'm just using that as an example. But that's one of the things was the Befana is always difficult. I think I forget what I did in that book. I probably, maybe I explained it in the beginning in the translator's note. Yeah, I mean, there are just things like that. There was the, what else? Oh, there was the thing called Vegetina, <laughs> which is the vegetable, weird vegetable flower, <laughs> which was not so easy to find out about. <laughs> but, um, those were sort of, you know, some of the big, and the background things of the, well, the war, not just the Ethiopian War, but the First World War, which her father fought in, and then the Ethiopian War, which Michele, her husband, has fought in. And, you know, what that meant, in, I mean, a little bit what that meant, does it mean that her husband was a fascist because he fought for Mussolini? You know, what does that, it doesn't really mean that. I mean, not in an active way. You know, many people were members of the fat and had to join the fascist party. So it's a pretty interesting period. I mean, before this novel, when she's talking about her early life and her marriage, the beginning of her marriage, you know, and to get married during the war in Italy was pretty, well, I guess they got married before the war, but the, she talks about the son growing up during the war and how hard that was. So that's the kind of thing you would want to know about a little bit. There's some of that in Ferrante, but she starts a little later. Maybe we could talk about some of the interesting connections between Alba de Cespedes' book and Ferrante's books. It struck me that they share a lot of similar themes, especially in terms of, you know, what kind of power does a woman have in the world? Where does her power come from? How does she even come into it? How does she wield it? And... Is there something in these in these books and in these Italian women writers that speaks to you that you find particularly interesting or that you've sort of carried through from each of these books? I always find that I it's not that hard for me to identify with a first person woman narrator who's, you know, more or less well, Lenu in the Neapolitan novels is really you know, her history is the same as mine, basically. So it's easy to identify with her and to feel, I mean, of course I didn't grow up in Naples, but, or have exactly the same, in a sense, had none of the same things happen to me, but it was the same period of history, you know, like with feminism or um, with women, you know, coming of age, starting to to have power or to figure out how to be powerful, how to have careers, how to have, that were meaningful to them. Well, of course, Valeria's career is meaningful to her, but for many reasons. <laughs> I mean, for some outside reasons, not just because, but yeah, I mean, I think it's the psychological struggle that really is 
something that I guess I must identify with in some way that makes me want to read these books and makes them really upsetting <laughs> to work on. Do you find them upsetting? I do, because when you read a book like this, well, especially when I'm working on a first on a first draft and I haven't necessarily read the book first, or even if I have and you know what's going to happen, it's like you can see you see what's happening and of course the character doesn't see what's happening. <laughs> And it's very distressing <laughs> to go back. And also, obviously, since I read them several times, more than several times sometimes, it's reliving them. I don't know. <laughs> it's like reliving your own life. <laughs> I read that um, Days of Abandonment was the first Ferrante novel that you translated. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. And I thought that this book is such a parallel to that one in this way of of a woman you know, taking care of a home. But in that one, it's like the woman loses it and she refuses and she goes nuts. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's yeah. like, it's completely becomes untethered. Where in this one, I can almost see like Ferrante writing through Cespedes. It's like, it's so much more subtle, contained, a small act of rebellion. I agree. I think that's really true. Well, first of all, Days of Abandonment is a wonderful book. I mean, it's really a good book. But I do, I think that's right. I think you can see, I mean, the Decespedes is, it is like on a smaller scale, the same book. I mean, and as you say, it's a different story, sort of a different story, but it's also very much the same story. It's again, you know, the, the woman is struggling to become a person, <laughs> to become herself, to become a person, to become powerful in some way. I was wondering, since I can't, remember what year that was that you translated Days of Abandonment? 2005. 2005. Okay, well, I think that's when it came out. So from that moment to then just the, you know, the last decade or so, the insane Ferrante fever. Oh, <laughs> I'm wondering how, how much that has changed your life, what that's been like for you to be behind these books that have been such a phenomenon here in the United States. Well, it was really surprising to me in the beginning. Obviously, the reason is because the author didn't want to stand in for herself. And so somehow people wanted somebody to talk to or wanted not just somebody to talk to because she, well, more and more, she's agreed to be interviewed by, by email, but somehow they wanted to be, you know, a face or a, a person identified with the books. And the person, I guess the obvious person was the translator. I mean, I was really shocked by that. I was so surprised when that started to happen because, you know, translators are mainly forgotten. They're not really part of the part of the conversation. <laughs> but I think that that changed things a lot for uh, translators. People became aware that there was another person involved in the reading of a book. So it really, it did change things, I think, for translators in general, changed things for me because People were interested in Ferrante and wanted to talk about Ferrante. And, you know, I never expected that that was something that I would do. <laughs> so it was very surprising. But I think it's a good thing. You know, it's just given more presence to translation and translators. Although they say that not that many more books are getting translated. <laughs> it's really a very sad number. But we're working on it. <laughs> How do you account for, I mean, I had a friend when the Ferrante books came out, who I remember being like, it's crazy that everybody's 
reading these because they're so they're so particular. They're so about this particular place and time. And I can't imagine that so many people are interested in Naples in the 1950s. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that's both true and not true. But I wonder how you how you understand, you know, so many people responding to those novels. It was interesting to me to find out that, well, first of all, of course, it, the phenomenon was just so startling and so surprising. But I think that they do have that universal, some kind of universal quality. I mean, it sounds a little cliched or something, but but they do of, again, of women trying to find themselves and how they do the different ways that they choose to do that and the different kinds of lives they have, the different kinds of mistakes they make. And I think women everywhere identified with that or found something in it that they responded to. I'd like to, to tell this story. I, I went to um, this um, book club. It was called the UN Book Club. They were basically wives of diplomats from everywhere in the world. And they all had read Ferrante and loved it. It was really kind of moving <laughs> that the people from so many different kinds of lives and backgrounds just found this book, these books to be meaningful to them. And then there was another woman, this was early on, there was a critic, I think an English critic, who said something like she was getting together with her friends to, I guess they were reading the one of the books together. We started talking about the books, but we suddenly were talking about our own lives and it was hard to tell whether we were talking about the books or our own lives. There's some quality of that in those books that even if the specifics are not, the details are not your details, they correspond in some way to your own details, your own history. Yeah, I think that's clear. Even from the from the Cespedes, I can see that that this is, I don't exactly have this life, or I, I really don't, not nearly, and neither did the author, I guess. Right, no, she didn't have that life either, but it somehow chimes with so many issues in some way or other, so many problems that you deal with, <laughs> even if they're not the exact same problem. I was curious, since you've been translating from Italian for so long, if you kind of think of books on an individual basis, or if you also think of yourself as someone who is translating the idiom of Italian literature into English, if you feel like there's a connective tissue between all the books you're doing and it's like a larger project, or if you really feel like it's a, you know, individual book by book basis that you're translating. I think it's a kind of an author by author basis. I don't feel that I could say anything about bringing Italian literature into English in a general way. I just feel that it's, yeah, it's more of an author by author. I mean, especially in the, in the last few years, I've translated, really since Ferrante, I've translated a lot. Before that, I didn't. Now I've been translating a lot of women and a lot of women of the period before Ferrante, of the period of Decespedes, like um, Anna Maria Ortese and this other writer who just has a book coming out, <laughs> Marina Jar, who's a little bit younger than Decespedes, but also wrote like in the 50s, 60s, and so on. Those writers, there is something. They have nothing in common, really, but they have in common the same question of thinking about how women live in this society or what does their past be? It just, they just seem to be, to have certain similarities, even though their books are totally different. So, yeah, I think it's really an author by author thing, except for the 
20th century women. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> I'm bringing 20th century Italian women into the 21st century. <laughs> I mean, not just by myself, other people too, but are doing this. That's your project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, De Cespedes's books were translated at the time into English. And I think she actually even was a little bit popular, maybe even very popular. But again, you know, I had never heard of her until I read until I read about her in Ferrate. What happened to her after you know, we kind of stopped it at her uh, yeah, leaving I after know. the war? I don't really know. I mean, she did write books. She wrote, I think her last book maybe was in 1967. I actually haven't read them because they haven't been, they're hard to get. But yeah, she has, she wrote about three or four more novels. And then she didn't seem to write other novels. She got very involved in Cuba. She went, she hadn't been much in Cuba when she was a child. Her father, I think, retired there and was dying. She went to Cuba and spent a long time there. And she got involved in writing a very long, elaborate novel about Cuba, which she never finished. And then she moved to Paris and she also wrote in French. She wrote a novel in French. She then rewrote in Italian. I mean, <laughs> I don't really know what happened in the last 20 or 30 years of her life, what she was up to, or why she became less popular. Also, just a little bit of an aside, this is a funny story. Her second novel, the one right before Forbidden Notebook, which I think I mentioned it was called Da Parte di Lei, from her side, or her side of the story, I forget how it's being translated. She also, it was so popular that she wrote an advice column, in a <laughs> kind of an advice column, answering readers' letters, in a magazine called Her Side of the Story with the same title as her novel. So that was kind of a degree of popularity, I think, that not very many people achieve, or not many women writers. Have you read that advice con? No, I can't find it. I can't, again, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to get. I mean, the internet is incredible. You can get so much stuff on the internet, but I haven't, that I haven't been able to find, but I think it would be pretty entertaining. Yeah, like there's parts of this book where people are a little bit scandalized by this book at all. There are, there's a child conceived out of wedlock. Yeah. And there's the beginnings of an affair. You know, I don't know, but it's an interesting question because because it seems like it's, these must have been questions that people were dealing with in it because it was a new social structure in a way. Or maybe it was an old social structure that wasn't ever talked about. <laughs> I think that's maybe more to the point. <laughs> There's a beautiful part in the book where she says something around the lines of the old world was her mother's world, the new one was her daughter's, and that she, these two worlds were clashing in her. And perhaps she wasn't even a person, she was just the clash. And I found that to be really lovely and also sad because she's consistently sort of self-obliterated in this way. Yes. Well, it's at the end where it's like she sort of realizes that she wants, she doesn't want her daughter to have her life. And will she escape it? I mean, really, that's, in a way, that's what, I think that's partly what that's about. Whether her way is going to bring her some kind of freedom that Valeria doesn't have, or can't have, at least, so it seems. You know, she just gets <laughs> bound even tighter. There's definitely this sense of hopelessness. I mean, I was thought it was really remarkable where she talks about, you know, that She's become more revolutionary as she's gotten older. The person that she is now is a lot more interesting in some ways than the Valeria that Michele met when she was young. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
But also just the fact that you feel like she's so much about she's old, she's not allowed these things. Even McKelly, like he has this script that he writes and the person he gives it to is kind of like, oh, it's a shame. Like he could have been good in the movies, but it's clear like nothing can happen now because he's older and his career won't change. And maybe this is too personal a question, but as someone who has had, you know, I know they used to be an editor at The New Yorker or work at The New Yorker, and then kind of did have this shift to becoming more of a full-time translator later in life, how you related to these aspects in the book of kind of like these immovable positions in society, how you thought about that as someone who whose life has changed so much and maybe not like you didn't set out to become a translator, but you became one later and you did have this big shift more towards the middle of your life. To me, it seems like, I, I hate to put it like this, but I seem like a good example <laughs> of something that you can do, that you can do something different in your life. Well, not totally different, but you know, different enough. I mean, I didn't even start learning Italian until I was in my mid thirties or late mid to late thirties. So it just seems like you you can do that. And I, you know, it's a little bit upsetting that Valeria so much thinks she can't. I mean, that's what I mean when I'm talking about these books being upsetting, because you think doesn't have to be that way. But then you think about the time and the the era and how she can't see another way out for herself. But her daughter perhaps can. Her daughter's going to the university for one thing. But on the other hand, she also seems to think of her daughter as that getting married is the thing that she's supposed to do. So it's a little bit of a struggle. But yeah, I think you can I think now it's a lot easier to do something to change your career to do something totally different in your life. It would be hard to become a doctor because you'd have to go to medical school, but that would take quite a while. But but you could do it. I mean, I think it's a it's a good thing to think about sometimes. <laughs> Not to feel stuck. Yeah, it's nice to have a little bit of um hope after yeah. after reading the Forbidden Notebook, which is so yeah. beautiful, but a little dismal but in a little grim at the <laughs> Yeah, it's very upsetting. Thank you, Anne, so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Anne Goldstein, translator of Alba de Cespedes' novel, Forbidden Notebook. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please... Rate us an Apple podcast to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.